Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, available from McFarland Publishing, wherever books are sold. Now, back to our show. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, today we're going to look at our part two, uh, discussing a little bit of history of baseball. Again, we're breezing through this pretty fast, so obviously I don't want people to be like, oh, you forgot about this, you forgot about that. We're not going over like every team that won the World Series, but um, really we're just kind of talking about these eras and going to how the game evolved and becomes America's pastime or this major part of Americana that it is today. Generally speaking, 1930s, uh, you have a lot of hitters. That's with game changes. Uh, they move the stance closer. The crowds love seeing home runs. Uh, Great Depression actually puts a little damper in all this. Um, they said that the peak average of attendance pre-Great Depression, like late 20s, was 8,000, a little over 8,000. Uh, Great Depression kind of really minimizes that, and it falls below 5,000, which actually is the reason we have the All-Star Game. So in 1933, the numbers were so low for people going to see baseball games that they they created the All-Star Game. It was like a mid-season break. Um in which they basically, you know, it's in the name, right? They put the greatest players together from each league, and then they play against each other. And it was a meaningless demonstration game, but it was there was the idea of kind of trying to bring more people into the stands, right? Um, and also in 1936, that is when you have the creation of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, and you have the first five players. Do you know who the first five players are? I know it's Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb. Who else you got there? Uh, Walter Johnson, Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner, yeah, uh, that's the name people are going to realize um most valuable baseball card. Really? He was against tobacco. Well, he was a, he was against tobacco, smoking and chewing tobacco. So he had all used to get baseball cards at that time before the era when it was in like bubble gum and stuff like that. You'd get them in these tobacco cards and in tobacco packs. And he was like, I don't want kids buying tobacco packs to get my card. So he had his cards destroyed or refused oh. let them sell it. And that's why there's only very few Hornets Wagner cards in existence. They're the most that's expensive cool. baseball cards because of that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and the other one was Christopher uh, Matthewson, right? Big Six, yes. the Christian Gentleman, or the Matty, the Gentleman's Hurler, they was known as, um, who played 17 seasons with the New York Giants. But yeah, those are the first ones. Um, so the hole formally opened in 1939, and it remains open to this day. So World War II. This is interesting. That's a cool story, I think, World War II, right? Well, again, this could be a podcast in itself. But um, you have more than 500 major leaguers. And 37 future Hall of Famers actually served in military during this time. And the big thing is Roosevelt um, wants them to do that. He's not saying Yeah, this is don't. cool. This is a cool story. A lot of them are sacrificing their prime years of their careers. But he's also saying, listen, it's, he's, he'll write something known as the Green um, Light Letter. He encourages play to continue. Because he says yeah. baseball is a necessary moral booster during difficult times. So it's basically it's part of Americana. It is America's pastime by this point. We need people. We need people to yep. still watch and play baseball because it's going to keep morale up. It gives people yeah, an escape for a couple hours. Yep. And it was interesting because initially, like you know, the baseball commissioner asked him, like, "What? What do you want to do? Should we stop playing baseball? And yeah. it's a trying time. It's World War II. Players gone." And as you said, he's like, "No, no, you got to keep them playing." He did have one request though, and he asked that games should be played at night so that way all the workers that are soon. working in the factories, right, in World War II, could attend these games which I thought was kind of cool. Also, this, you know, this is the time where 1941, you have the premature death of Lou, um, Lou Gehrig. Yeah. 
Um, also, during the same season in 41, Pearl Harbor is about to happen in December. World War II is around the corner. Joe DiMaggio hits successfully in 56 consecutive games. Okay, uh, which you're was a- busting out the facts. Which is yeah, well, apparently this is an accomplishment that was unprecedented. Well, it's, a record that, it's, a re- it's a record that still stands today. Yeah, really, that I did not know. But yes. I did when I was looking it up, and they're like, you know, Joe DiMaggio starts like when World War One starts. I was like, all right, well, it seems like a big deal. Jumping Joe um, DiMaggio, and he's, and he's part of songs too. That guy, I guess we can talk about Joe DiMaggio a little bit, right? He's, I'm sure you heard uh, Mrs. Robinson that song, right? He's part of Americana, yeah. um, and that yeah. uh, Simon Garfunkel, the other one that see that song. Yep, yep. No. Yep, yep. Yeah, so I remember they mentioned that at first, um, Jordan Masha, who is not, he was like this, he's not the nicest guy in the world, but um, we'll get to him, I guess, more when we talk to the 50s because he was married to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, like the athlete with the movie star, right? First, yeah. like it couple, right? Before uh, J-Lo and A-Rod, but they're not together anymore. But you know what I mean? Nope. That sort of <laughs> stuff. But um, he actually does, he was actually contemplating suing them. So Because who? he he's suing Simon Garfunkel. He, they were making fun really? of him in that song until they had to explain to him, no, they're saying like, you know, where are you, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eye to you. That's like, they're saying that no, where are our morals? Where are our heroes of our youth? He thought they were like yeah. mocking him. So he was like a very, on his image and stuff like that. You know, it's interesting too, that with regards to that, because where are you, Joe DiMaggio? I mean, he wound up missing playing time. So 41 lead up to oh, him, US Ted Williams, World yeah, they were, they were in the yeah. war. They're, they had <laughs> they to go. Um, like these are they, the prime years of their career. They, exactly. Yeah. Like in 41, everyone's like, oh my gosh, like Joe DiMaggio is going to be the next big thing. And then boom, he gets drafted. And that's pretty much the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, so he, the still becomes have... a, he still becomes a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, just yeah. takes over. Indeed. Right. Uh, baseball really takes off after World War II. In 1945, this a new attendance record um, is established. And basically average crowds went up like 70% from pre-World War II times. So it really kind of starts in... Then you have new records for crowds in 48 and 49, and the average um, size of the audience reaches about 16,900. So by today's standards, you're like, all right. But back then, you know, stemming from 1939 when it was like 4,000, and all of a sudden World War II ends in 45 by 48, 49 is 16,000. That's kind of a big deal. And then it kind of starts to dip a little bit, I feel like, afterwards. You know, in the 50s and 60s, based on these numbers, it dips. And then stems. Well, baseball is so widely popular. But what you're doing is that it's going out west. There's, a lot, there's going to be a lot of changes. We'll so that, the, post, yeah. the post-war years in baseball. But I guess before we skip that, we have to also mention that in the war years, you also had the female baseball league, the all-women's yes. baseball league, that comes around um, during that time. And um, it was it, – Really put in place to compensate for the loss of many of the best major league players in the war effort. Obviously, is that um, movie Tom Hanks movie? Tom Hanks, right? movie. Tom Hanks was down a league of their own. Yeah. Um, it lasts for a number of years. Obviously, when the war is it over, until 50, 54, 54 yeah. it ended. It was forty three to fifty four. Not a good run, and they are recognized at the Baseball Hall of Fame, I believe, too. The um, those individuals. So it's an interesting story uh, out there. It is. I mean, like six hundred women, like six hundred women, played yeah. in the league. Right? It was popular. Um, no, it was popular. People enjoyed it. It was baseball. It was baseball. It was mostly Midwest, though. It was like it was 10 teams, and they were mostly in American Midwest. Um, but yeah, they said that the 48 league attendance peaked at 900,000 in the calendar year 48. Yeah, so there, it, was, it was popular, without a doubt. Yeah. But good point, you know, trying to like almost make up for the fact, just like women went, you know, went into becoming plumbers and electricians and working in factories yeah, and yeah, building yeah. warships, they, they also went to play baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Why um, not? 
So great story. And I think, you know, like it's also stemming, you know, kind of going from this whole like women's rights stuff. Let's get into racial integration in baseball because that becomes a thing. That's a World War II. Well, yeah, that's as we've seen again World War II. And, you know, they were basically we briefly mentioned it in the last podcast, but let's, let's yeah, talk about know, it. Yeah. They're fighting for freedom. African Americans are fighting for freedom against the Nazis, right? They're fighting for the country. You know, they're coming back and they're like, this doesn't make much sense. Now I don't have, you know, yeah. the same freedoms or that I was fighting for saying I was going to have. So you start seeing this integration um, partly during this time. And during the baseball winter meetings, I think in 1943, there was a lot of uh, push for integration of the sport, but it didn't happen again until after World War II. Everyone's kind of saying, we'll do it, but not until after World War II. Now, there were the Negro Leagues. Uh, everyone knows the Negro League um, uh, hearing about. And they had those World Series, stuff like that. But they just like, no, we want players in baseball. No more segregation, right? It's getting yeah. rid of the segregation, basically, in baseball. Do you notice that at first they try to actually try to pass some African-American players as Native Americans to try to yeah, get them in yeah. um, before officially they were like, all right, now we're going to make this work. So you have uh, Pittsburgh Pirates owner, right? Uh, signs Josh Gibson to a contract in 43. Yeah. The general manager who basically became the most successful in breaking the color barrier, right? was Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And what he did is in mid 40s, he starts going and watching different games in a Negro League and he compiles a whole list of possible players that he could bring over or that could be brought over to major league contracts you know i kind of mentioned this a little bit in the last podcast um last week but the idea here was that whoever they did sign um was going to basically be a you know a magnet for prejudice right and and racism so the idea was um right ricky kind of went out there and says we need to find a player that is distinguished uh, you know has a distinguished personality um, and character as much as the ability to play baseball player had to be able to tolerate this inevitable abuse. So that's how they settled on Jackie Robinson, right? Who was um, a shortstop for the Kansas City Monarchs. Again, not the best player in the Negro League by any means, but the right character and the right well, person. Yeah, well, they also told him, yeah, so like if you ever watched a movie, uh, 42, which uh, deals with that, um, yeah, he's basically told for the first couple of years, you have to like just turn the other cheek. But you, uh, later on, he starts to trip back, which is good. You should be able to set up for yourself. Yeah. So he, he actually starts April 15th, 1947. And then minor 11 leagues, weeks right? later. Doesn't he start minor um, leagues first? Technically, yes, but he does but he does make his debut for the Dodgers. Um, in 47, yeah. In 46, yeah. they get him playing some minor leagues, the Montreal yeah. Royals. They're like, all right, this yeah. is just kind of dip your toes. Right. And then just 11 weeks later, on July 5th, 1947, is when the American League integrates with Larry Doby of the Cleveland Indians. So you yep. start getting, you start to get, again, it's only a few players per team. Sasha Page eventually goes also to the Indians. He's probably a famous uh, Negro League player that people have heard of before. Um, he was old at that time, too, um, yep. still effective. And you start to get uh, integration, but it's very slow. By 1953, you only had six of the 16 teams had African American players in the roster. Yep, I saw that. So. Right. Yeah, and, um, and, you're, and, and the Red Sox are actually the last major league team to integrate its roster in uh, 1959. Yep. They said, though, that even though they were limited in numbers, African-Americans' like on-field performance uh, was just outstanding. In the 14 years well, from 1947 yeah. Yeah, until 1960, so from the first integration until 1960, black players won one or more of uh, the Rookie of the Year awards nine times, which is... Like unprecedented. Also, as I remember, a lot of these players, they've played in other leagues. They had experience. They were rookies in the major league, right? But they weren't yeah. necessarily rookies to – well, no one's rookie to the game of baseball, but they, were, they weren't rookies to like the, that, you know, that type of competition, you know? Yeah. So coming in, I'm not, not downplaying it, but I'm saying they, they had some experience. So obviously coming in, they're going to be – they were great players. So yeah. And also apparently a lot of credit is given uh, to African-American players of kind of 
changing and de-emphasizing the predominance of power hitting um, and speed, more towards yeah. base, base running, running and speed. Yep. So, but yeah, no, African-American participation in baseball um, rose a lot, obviously, right? Uh, by 74, 27% of baseball players were African-American. Um, also, you, this also opens up a lot of doors for Latin American players that wind up yes. getting in as well because of this integration. Um, but yeah. Uh, bah, 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 bah. All right. So, yeah, so it does go up, but um, nowadays, you want to get to nowadays a little bit just to talk oh, about it. Yeah. Like African Americans are actually make up only about 9% of the major league players. Um, there's a lot of factors for that. I guess we'll talk about later, or we can talk about. Um, you, could do, you, want, you want to do it now? Go. Well, it's basically uh, one, there is a lot more. Um, like you said, Latin American players that were touched over about 30%, right? In yep. 2017. Um, but a lot of other factors, the instance says that, like Dave Winfield, he's a um, Hall of Fame player. He said that, listen, in urban America, where a lot of African Americans grow up, like they are, there's just fewer resources for youth baseball. So this, yep. so that's one reason why you're not seeing as high. It is up, I think, around, around 10% and stuff like that. So it's, But it's not what it was, obviously, uh, many years ago. There, there's a lot of programs now trying to get it back, trying to get these like areas that may not have as much um, money and stuff, the funding so they can play baseball. But it's also there's more sports for people to play too. It used to be you, you were baseball. It was, it was a little league or nothing. But if you look, you know, you have kids now. Just look at all the different you know youth programs out there: soccer, lacrosse, football, basketball. So but the cost of these things is 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 ridiculous. I mean, oh, ESPN yeah. did a whole piece on this. Uh, kids aren't it's playing enough sports. Like yeah. yeah, like corporate cost. It just costs way too much money. And I mean. In 2018, only 30% of kids aged 6 to 12 played sports on a regular basis, right? Uh, so 38% of 6 to 12 year olds, what oh, you would yeah. think, would play a lot of sports. And that was down 45% from 2008. Like, just kids are not playing. And the reason for it is because everything is so so expensive. So the ESPN compiled this. Esports, Pete. They're all going to esports. They want esports scholarships. That's what it is. They want to play video games. But <laughs> – Average annual spending, right, per sport per child, average, right? Baseball, average annual spending for baseball from a kid that's 6 to 12 years old. So we're not talking high school, you know, I'm going to get yeah. a scholarship. I'm talking a 7-year-old, let's say, right, is $659 to play baseball, average cost. Field hockey, $2,124. And then, you know, you said ice hockey, right? Ice hockey is $2,582 average for a child between six and 12 per year in America to play that sport. Like that is crazy. You know, African-Americans are, it's, it's not like they're not playing baseball. It's just because of the fact that the costs are so high and the statistics prove that a lot of African-American children don't have the money or the right means to really partake in these organized sports. I think it's. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's a detriment, you know, to not just the kids, but also to the sport itself. But let's kind of come back real quick. So what we have here, let's kind of get into Major League Baseball relocates, really, in the 50s and 60s, right? It's time. Yeah, so they start moving, moving west. They start moving west, west yep. right? That's right. right so so- you already have something called the Pacific Coast League, right? It was already there. You had a bunch of uh, players there. It's actually where a lot of um, Jordan Maggio started there. So a lot of players would start there. You know, they would move their way and stuff like that to other places. And uh, But what you're seeing is like an actual league. So you start seeing some teams start to relocate. The Boston Braves move to Milwaukee, right? The same, um, yeah, some other teams there in, yeah. um, that go. The Philadelphia Athletics move to Kansas City, right? And they become you know, the Royals and stuff like that. But the biggest one, one of the bigger ones is probably when um, in 1958, yep. where New York. the Dodgers and the Giants both leave. And the thing is, the, because the fear was that the PCL, right, um, that the Pacific, Pacific League yeah. was going to start its own league. And it's like, wait, it's wait, we league. can't do that. We need to, <laughs> like, we, we can't allow them to do that. So that was the whole idea of, all right, how can we place some teams? Yeah. And they were offered a lot of money. East, Walter West. O'Malley on yeah. the Dodgers was offered a lot of money to go over. To move to LA. And it basically, apparently, Los Angeles basically gave Walter O'Malley, right, the owner of the Dodgers, yeah. they gave him a helicopter yeah. tour yeah. in the city. And they're like, like pick, pick a spot. spot. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? <laughs> it's like crazy. And this it's creates like, a lot of rivalry. The Dodgers and Giants, they still have. So basically, they both left because the Yankees were drawing, was outdrawing both of them. Yeah, that's and what they, I yeah, Obviously, yeah. they were becoming dominant of the, in, the, in the town in the 50s. And um, they were winning the World Series virtually every year. So everyone was going to be a Yankee fan. You know, all the immigrants coming in, what are they doing to be a Yankee fan? So they were, you know, they needed these, these new markets. They had, a, you know, baseball people, a lot of people, you know, that lived even in the East coast moves to the West coast at this point. Right. So they were starving for baseball. Let's bring baseball to the West coast. Yeah. This is also the first major league baseball expansion in 70 years. So the first um, expansion team, the only California expansion team really at that time was the Los Angeles angels, right? Later the California angels. Um, and eventually I think 2005, there were the LA angels of but yeah that was like the first major league baseball expansion after the dodgers and giants were brought over to california so what else we have we have the expansion of american league in kansas city royals right i mean it's just basically i would say the 19 a lot more teams come yeah more teams are coming well yeah because they have to keep up so like um like the um the key pace right the american league which now had 10 teams and nationally needed to expand also to 10 teams so they add two new teams to the Houston Colt 45s, which become the Houston Astros, and the New York Mets, they come and the Mets have the colors of the two previous teams, right? The blue from the Dodgers, the orange from the Giants. That's how you get the Mets colors. So they come into place. And then the, um, in 1969, you have the Royals, the Seattle Pilots. They later become the um, Mariners. So you have all these teams that are slowly popping up, the Expos, the Padres. Over I mean, they settle. Uh, they settle on the fifteenth. Uh, they settle on fifteen teams on each side. Nineteen ninety-eight, right? The American League and National League. Um, they each added the fifteenth team, so there was a total of thirty teams in Major League Baseball, right? And I think I'm pretty sure that's where we're at today, isn't it? Well, yeah. The last teams I believe are added in um, ninety-eight when you have the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, now just the Rays. You have the Diamondbacks um, in Arizona. A couple other teams that do get uh, put in there. You have all these expansion teams, and the expansions happen when they're trying to grow the game. I don't think yeah. they're, they're not planning any future expansion teams anytime soon because you don't want to oversaturate it. But it's as the teams, as the sport gets more popular, we want to continue the expansion. That's what they even do now when they play games in Japan. They, they plan on playing games in Mexico. They want to play games in Europe. That was a big thing a couple of years ago. Uh, see, COVID put a stop to some of that. But it's playing these yeah. games overseas to try to like spread the game and 
get other people interested, like World Baseball Classics, another another example of that. It's kind of like the World Cup for baseball. Not yeah. as popular. I'm not saying yeah, that, yeah. but it's it, they're trying to get the game more international. And also, you know, 1980s, really, this is the marketing and hype era and science of sports kind of changing the game, right? You know, free agency, players are moving. You start having f uh, star players, basically. Uh, sports science conditioning. So players are getting better, ultimately, at the game. And But marketing and television broadcasts, sporting events, uh, prime time on TV. Uh, you have brand name products and greater visibility, like Yankees. You know, like just New Jersey alone, right? You are northern middle northern jersey you're going to see yankee and mets gear you get further south jersey you're going to see phillies you know it's yeah, we'll hear the whole regional baseball teams the regional branding. baseball networks yeah, that you're seeing, stuff like that it's branding there they learned pretty early on i guess during the time of ruth but definitely during the time of dimaggio mantle um some of those other players uh, that come later on like carlos Strimsky. i think people like that that that's um we can market the players you can also market just the teams like the merch like the merchandise and TV has yeah. so much to do with this. The arrival of TV, right, in 1950s basically increases attention for revenue uh, from all the major league clubs. Very regional television programming. But the only baseball game I could watch is a New York Yankee game. Like, I'm going to be more inclined to become a New York Yankees fan. Like, that's, you know, there was national networks that started showing televised national games, like a national game of the week uh, in the 60s yeah. and 70s. But you know, it was still kind of remained and was primarily TV geared towards a given, um, what do you call it? You know, region, right? Region. Cable yeah, well, kind of having Northeast in the 50s. Yeah, too, cable kind of changes that in the 70s, I guess you would say. But, you know, that's also like in the 70s, you have obviously just all sports because of television, right? Cable makes television, a, a, you know, national um, in a sense that you start, you could follow teams that are not in your market, you know, eventually on demand and all that other stuff. But, so TV, huge in marketing and hyping up baseball. Actually, the average attendance first broke 20,000 in 1979 and then 30,000 in 1993. So baseball becomes very popular in the 80s, I would say the 80s and 90s. Well, right? and what they're doing is that at that time is they're also trying to get um, more runs per game. We talked about four, like in, 16, in the 60s, 69, they actually um, reduced the pitcher amount. They lowered it. Yep. And they um, reduced the strike zone in 73, the American League, putting the designated hitter, the National League finally just did that now, the, putting in the designated hitter, which means the pitcher wouldn't hit. Yep. Yeah, the designated pitcher would just hit. They're trying to increase offense and stuff like that. But really, what you're seeing, the explosion with all that um, revenue is that the players are saying, you know, we want more money too. And the first legal challenge of that comes when uh, Kurt Floyd, right, took the yep. leagues to court and negotiated player trade. Um, Floyd versus Kuhn, yeah. 1972. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, fighting for you, Floyd tries to flood. I'm sorry, tries that. Um, he lost, right? Yeah. He tried to argue the 13th Amendment. Then you have other ones later on, and they eventually win. And it basically allows um, free well, agency, about, which skyrockets yeah. the prices. Of course. And and that's, that also leads to players also signing different deals with, you know, trading cards and companies and, you know. Endorsements. Well, even that, like Babe Ruth had endorsements for like, different things and, you know, cigarettes, even a lot of them yeah. do cigarettes. It's crazy. Uh, beer. I know there used to be this show called Home Run Derby um, that I would watch like reruns on, like classic sports. And they would literally have like, like these, you know, Mickey Mantle, these guys hit, trying to hit, I mean, who get the most home runs and stuff like that. And then they'd be like doing advertisements for like beer and cigarettes and stuff like that in between. And they were like, listen, they're paying me $5,000 to say, I smoke Marlboro lights. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. That wouldn't fly today. 
but back no, in 1956, 1960s, yeah, go for it. But, and I, yeah. you know, I think that also brings up players having a lot more say, have a lot more power within their team. So I think we should, this is a good time to talk about strikes. I mean, there was a strike in 72, 73, 80, yeah. uh, but those are all held in preseason. There was a stop. There was some stoppage, I think, in 72 that disrupted the season. And then in 76, the uh, owners locked out players out of the spring training in a dispute over free agency. But I think that the, the one of the biggest ones was 94, 95, right? Well, that's the biggest one because even the other ones, they had a reduced season. So the one that happened in 81 had like a reduced season and stuff like that, but they still had a World Series winner. Yeah. Um, in 94, you didn't, and you did not have one. And 85, wasn't there a two day strike in 85 over a division of television revenue money because yeah. the mm-hmm. TV was making so much money? But yeah, so this is the 32 day spring training lockout in 1990. That was a thing. But so what happened in 94? Do you remember it that? was basically there was there was a strike. Well, I was twelve, but it was yeah. basically um, it was a, they it, it was the end of the um, it was over salary and structure and everything like that. Yep. And the worst it was by far the worst ones. Um, they tried to renegotiate salary for free agency in ninety two. They didn't really do much, and the standoff continued until nineteen ninety four when it would um, actually end in the middle of the season when no agreement would take place. So out of the conflict was that these small market teams, let's say like the Mariners, they couldn't compete with like the New York teams or the LA teams. Yeah. So their plan was to institute these, the, the revenue sharing, right? To increase yeah. equality among all of them and impose a salary cap. The, no players want a salary cap because that's going to limit how much money they can make, right? They don't want a salary cap. So it could reduce their potential earnings. So it wasn't until 2003, actually, when Major League Baseball put in a luxury tax, which is what they still have now. But it was the first time since 1904, the World Series was actually canceled. I remember it was like mid-season. They were playing and all of a sudden, all right, the season's over. New. They're still always talking about the season's going to come back on, season's going to come back on, but it just never did. And it was a real embarrassment for baseball, and fans were out, were, were mad. Um, again, I was young, but I do remember it. A lot of people were really, like, angry about this, and they said, listen, we're not going back. And attendance actually suffered a lot um, during this time. And, um, you know, when baseball came back in 95, it would take more than a decade for it to fully recover. Um, you had a couple of things that changed it. You had the um, – Kalerpkin Jr., right? He breaks Lou Gehrig's uh, consecutive game streak. So that starts. You have the home run race. Really, even though we find out later on that in the 1998 home run race was fueled by uh, steroids, basically. And I think that's important but because, you know, that kind of – the steroid – It's the steroid. And baseball knew that. They looked away from it yep. because they're like, well, fans are coming back to it. You know what I mean? Yep. So. But I think the steroid era really tainted baseball in the early 2000s. Like the 90s, you know, from the 95 on strike, it seemed like baseball couldn't really catch a break. You know, the steroid era, I feel like, tarnished a lot of it. And that became, you know, the talk of the town was, it wasn't like the wreck steroids, wasn't it like... It was, if, well, they had the steroids in the early 90s. You had... Uh, they called it like designer steroids. You had them with like Jose Canseco and stuff like that. Um, he was basically doing steroids. So you had the steroids in that time. But yeah, the and it was like Andro and stuff like that. That's yeah, yeah so it was designer steroids. So they were clear and they were not necessarily detected through drug tests at a time. So, yeah. you know, these people were taking, these players were taking these steroids, but also that like the obsession with home runs because there were so many powerful players in the early 2000s. Well, it was a big thing. You would watch it all the time and you would be like, oh, who's going to win? The, who's going to win this race? Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa had a home run race between these two players, right? And Sosa ends up with 66 home runs and McGuire ends up with 70, which is like unheard of. Remember, the record was 61. Right, and they're hearing more of them. Like routinely, players today, even right, uh, the two thousands reach forty to fifty home runs in a season, and that was basically rare in nineteen eighties. So look how much has changed in the past yeah. just twenty years. So I mean, I guess the uh, the two thousands kind of brings us to today, and and 
pretty much, I guess, brings us to the end of this podcast, because I, I feel like between the two parts, I think we did a, a pretty good uh, overview of, of the history of baseball. Obviously, we missed a lot of things, but, you know, this, this is just like a brief overview, give you a little bit of uh, baseball IQ, I guess, right? And I think, uh, you know, we'll pick another sport one of these days. Maybe, maybe. Until then, yeah, right, we'll, Tom? We'll, fe- we'll do fencing. <laughs> we should do fencing. Anyway... Uh, if anyone needs to contact us, guys, please feel free to do so. We do appreciate you tuning in every single week. It's awesome. Thank you. You can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you have any questions, comments, reactions, anything, just you know, find us there. Uh, and I guess till next week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in once more. Take care. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.